Hello and welcome to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, James Butler. Migration and the British government's treatment of migrants has returned to the headlines over the past week, with the fruits of Theresa May's hostile environment policy coming home to roost. That was a mixed metaphor. There's a lot in that story that tells us about the role migration has come to play in our politics, its salience, the uses to which migration is put by different parts of the political spectrum. Joining me in the studio today is Leah Upi, who is Professor of Political Theory at the LSE. Uh, and who has written extensively on the political philosophy of migration, cosmopolitanism, its relationship to political communities, not least the state, and co-edited a volume, Migration in Political Theory, the Ethics of Movement and Membership with Sarah Fine. Her work also extends beyond this to concerns with political agency, global justice, and the return of partisanship, the latter addressed in a very good recent book co-authored with Jonathan White. Useful reading, I think, for the Corbynite left, uh, among others. I suspect all of those issues will have some bearing on our discussion today. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Before we jump in, I should point out that this discussion marks the beginning of a series of articles and discussions on migration and free movement at Navarra, which will hopefully bring some serious ballast to the issue, uh, which often remains the domain of passion, canard, myth, cliché. Uh, and today we might discuss why that's often the case. Uh, in other news, our upcoming Navarra Media birthday party called Utopia Now is coming on May the 11th, where, uh, as well as a night of dancing, celebration and fun, you'll be able to hear me as well as a dazzling array of others from within and beyond the Navarra Media family say just a little bit about Utopia. You can get your tickets for that by going to buytickets.at forward slash Navarra Media, and I hope to see many of our listeners there. And if you're listening live, there is a fundraiser this evening being thrown by the Bakers Union in aid of the McDonald's workers' strike. You can find details of that on the Navarra Media social media. I'll be there, and so will John McDonald, although we have perhaps somewhat different pulling power. So I hope I'll see some listeners there as well. So uh, on to the show. Uh, I suppose maybe one of the best ways in here is, is to note the apparent salience of migration as an animating factor in politics in the UK and beyond. Now, obviously, here we've had the Brexit vote, and I think it's pretty clear from the studies that have emerged after that that, that there really was a very strong anti-migrant sentiment involved in, in that vote, among other things. Um, and that seems to chime in concert with some of the uh, really explosive political issues across Europe in particular uh, at the moment, uh, as well as the Muslim ban, uh, and the struggle over DACA, uh, uh, delayed action for childhood arrivals um, in, in the United States. So I guess the, the, the question I have is, is, is the centrality of migration to the political debate, especially in this ferocious form, a, a new thing? And why is it so ferocious? Um, I think migration-related questions are ferocious because they are not just about who the migrants are and how we engage with them, but also because they are questions about who we are and what kind of political community we belong to. And I think raising questions around migration is a way of raising questions about what kind of political community do we have, what kind of political community do we want to have, and is there anything beyond the political community, beyond the state and in the world at large. So I think migration debates are divisive because they direct us to this very question of what is a political community, mm -hmm. what is a state. And I think there's two stories there that pull against each other and are not necessarily compatible and that worry different legacies and different constituencies of the citizenship. 
uh, in different ways. So there's a kind of optimistic story, which sees the political community as basically a cooperative unit, like a large family, which is brought together by certain ties of linguistic nature or cultural nature of a political history, which has a claim to self-determination and a claim to control the resources and the movement of people within mm -hmm. its borders and outsiders. And so uh, that story then gathers a lot of uh, political traction because it's ultimately a question about the people, the British people, their rights, their right to self-determination, what kind of political project, what kind of uh, country they belong to and how should they interact with others who are also trying to engage with this country. And outsiders, especially outsiders that are perceived to enter the country in some illegal ways or to jump the queue when applying for visas or things like that, are seen as potential interferers with this self-determination project and are seen as agents that should be kept in check. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. uh, if we care about our self-determination project, then we should also care about what kind of people are allowed to be part of it. So that's the kind of optimistic story that says, well, we have this great country or great political community with its right to self-determination with a project that has had some problems along the way but is by and large committed to certain values like equality mm -hmm. and inclusion and toleration and so on. And therefore, because we care about that project, we should care about who comes in and who comes out. Now, there is a kind of pessimistic story about the political community, which uh, is especially about the prospects of democracy within the political community. And it's become particularly pessimistic in the current climate of crisis mm -hmm. of um, democracy and of liberal democracy and the impact of various other factors on this crisis, including, say, sovereign debt uh, or financial crisis, the influence of money on media. And so all the kinds of things that we talk about when we talk in politics, sort of day to day politics. And it's a kind of narrative that is pessimistic about the state that has an ancestor in what Marx used to say when he talked about the state as being basically the managing committee mm -hmm. of the affairs of the bourgeoisie or the liberal and political elites. Because it's a kind of story that doesn't go at all hand in hand with the first one that I said, which is the sort of self-determination mm -hmm. project committed to certain values and so on, but that instead looks at how the state is constantly being manipulated and instrumentalized. And so those who make claims on the state are also manipulated instrumentalized for reasons other than those that have to do with commitment to certain democratic values and in fact are often at odds with these democratic values and prevent the reinstantiation of these democratic values. And so in that kind of reading, which some sectors of the left might be committed to, then migration is a lens through which to consider the crisis of the state mm -hmm. and to consider the sort of impact of other factors on the state and the ability of the state to manage its own people and to deliver the kind of democratic promises that it makes both to its citizens, but also to outsiders who engage with the state in some form right, or so another. There's, there's, there's a double sense there. there. There's a sense between these two stories that on the one hand, the state is a relatively strong and benign thing that is capable of doing almost everything, right? Like that is that is capable of, of receiving as, you know, it doesn't matter who comes here. The state will remain relatively static. It's uh, susceptible to democratic control, it's susceptible to, to uh, direction by a sovereign people. Yep. Uh, and then this second story uh, is much more sceptical, right? And it, you mentioned here that the, that the left has, uh, or has had historically, I think is probably more accurate, mm -hmm. um, a critique of the state and said, and said, well, look, okay, here, are, you know, here is the history of struggle and here is how the state has right. responded to it. And the state absolutely goes through a series of political transformations. So for instance, the extension of the franchise, things like this, that transforms the nature right. of the state. But actually, the, you know, making inroads into, the, into that kind of entity, that mm -hmm. political entity, is it, it, actually tremendously difficult. Yeah. And it remains actually relatively static. Yeah. It has a kind of homeostasis to it. It doesn't like change. Uh, Etc. Etc. Now, 
it, that second sceptical story, it, it certainly exists on the left. But is it more the domain of the right these days? I mean, the right seems to have quite a strong uh, scepticism about the, the power of the state to, to preserve its identity, to preserve its, uh, you know, its, its uh, 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 prerogatives, uh, in the sense that it's, it, you know, the, in the imaginary of the right, the state is always under threat by these you know, various different forces. Um, so these are the kind of barbarian hordes, etc., et these kind of highly xenophobic, highly racialized arguments. And, and the extent to, you know, the, the place where you place that border is, you know, it varies, right? So sometimes it's, it, it's contracted to a single nation state. Sometimes it might be, you know, as you see in the rise of the kind of generation identity, people in Germany and indeed in London, in fact, there are uh, some of these kind of new right activists, they say, well, you know, look, Europe is actually a very fragile achievement uh, and actually we need to, to, to worry about the, these things at the borders of Europe, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, so is, it, is that position related to that kind of scepticism? Is there a continuity between them? Um, I think I wouldn't call it scepticism towards the state. Mm-hmm. I would say that there is an attempt to revive a certain conception of the state, which is that of a kind of homogenic ethnic mm-hmm. state that is defined by certain, as I said earlier, commonality of language, culture, values, and so on. And so the attempt is to say, well, look, this project is under threat unless we do something about migration. Mm-hmm. We will lose the state as we know it. We will lose the liberal state that has this great tradition of historical consolidation of these values of toleration and inclusion and so on, unless we take care of, say, the Muslim influence in mm-hmm. Europe or in the United States. Or So I think it's not so much that the right is hostile to the or that the right is on the same lines with this kind of critique of the state that I was talking about earlier. It's more, I think, the project of the right is that of realigning mm-hmm. the ethnic understanding of the state, the ethnic cultural understanding of the state with the image of the state as a sort of just a, a machine, basically mm-hmm. bureaucratic mm-hmm. apparatus, which would be the more Marxian way yeah. of understanding yeah. it. I think the interesting the interesting part of the kind of Marxian project or the, the left, the radical left project, is that it doesn't necessarily say that the state is a bad thing. It says the state can be bad or can be good. It depends on what mm-hmm, you do, mm-hmm. and it depends on how politics develops, mm-hmm. and um, and what one does with politics within the state. So that account recenters the political as 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 essential to to how you conceive of the state. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So I mean, and one of the things that strikes me actually is 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 how central a kind of rhetoric of toughness. Uh, of hardness and of security has been uh, to these attempts to revive, um, you know, uh, the, the, this kind of ethnically homogenous state. This, you know, and you know, the, the the quote from the prime minister that's been in in the news this week has been, you know, deport first, ask questions later. Think, wow, this is a, you know, this is a completely, um, you know, vicious and really uh, uh, almost paranoid thing yeah. thing to say. And so the presence of that that kind of anxiety, I think, is really striking. But it. It, it echoes across, you know, what one might think of as parties of, if not the radical left, then kind of the centre left as well. Um, and, and the case that, that occurs to me is the, the Danish law from a few years ago, which, uh, you know, was designed to, to allow the, the, the state to seize the jewellery and possessions of, of refugees. Um, uh, you know, and, and limit them to certain ghettos within cities and so on. Uh, and But it only passed the Danish parliament with support from the Social Democrats. And I think that's really striking as well, that that kind of uh, instinct in the absence of a critique of the state mm-hmm. um, to, 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 to have no, you know, no theoretical armature to, mm-hmm. to take it on. 
I think that, again, reflects a sort of wider trend, perhaps, in social democratic parties across Europe and, mm -hmm. and perhaps beyond as well, which is which is a deplorable trend, actually, which is the loss of the internationalist roots of these, or, or perhaps not the loss, but the somewhat thinking about this as a next stage that needs to be, first we worry about national social democracy and then we worry about transnational mm -hmm. democracy. And I think the... Um, the reflection of that is precisely that then social democratic parties become hostage to this very narrative, this posit positive, optimistic narrative about self-determination, mm -hmm. about the state and so on, and therefore are left with very few tools to counter things like let's be tough on this, when in fact they should run, I think what, what we ought to be paying more attention perhaps is telling the story in, in a joint way. And so when we say, well, the state says be tough or, or immigration policies say be tough on borders or deport now. I think we should say that that reflects a loss of control on the state mm -hmm. and that is being projected into migrants as a way of making up for the fact mm -hmm. that um, that precisely the state has lost control. We've lost control on the streets. We've lost control on the ability to provide mm -hmm. basic goods to citizens. Yeah. So we think about things like police funding mm -hmm. cuts and mm -hmm. how that makes the streets unsafe. And therefore, all this structural features go into second place and then what's brought out is the migrant as mm -hmm. the culprit of mm -hmm. responsibility for all yeah. of this. And so mm -hmm. it's a way of making up for, I think the narrative of having more control over migration is the other face of losing control right. within yeah. the state with one's own citizens and in failing to kind of deliver on the democratic promise that one makes to one's own citizens. So I guess the question that, that comes up for me here about these two narratives, about, about this, this question of, of control, because, because what's, what's underlying your account is this sense that there is this enduring social crisis, uh, something that was never resolved after the financial crisis, frankly, probably preceded it, um, and the state simply lacking... Um, in the absence of a political project which, you know, undertakes fundamental reformulation of the state and its goals, uh, any kind of policy mechanism, any kind of uh, e even conception of how, how, it, how it resolves that. So this gets pushed out. In that context, is there any truth to the optimistic uh, account of the state that that you outlined at the beginning is is there is there any defence that could be made of that? I think the the defence would be a kind of motivational defence mm -hmm. would be a defence that says this is not a bad ideal to hold on to, uh -huh. whilst one remains aware of the fact that this is just an ideal. Mm -hmm. That democracy is a great thing, but it has to work. Yes, it, and it has to work in the right circumstances. It has to work in the context of, for example, public opinion being allowed to be formed freely and circulate freely and undistorted by power inequalities, for example. It has to work in the sense of certain public goods being freely available to citizens who can benefit from these public goods. And all these things, these benefits require work, which is of a political nature. They are not given and they are not there to stay unless one fights for them. Mm and mobilizes on their behalf. And I think what is so what would be good about the narrative is that, as I say, this is a good motivational narrative because it gives you a clear target and a focus and it allows you to think about the state in certain terms and also to mobilize on behalf of these structures that need to be changed. It gives a clear focus to the fight, to the struggle. But on the other hand, as I say, one shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is an ideal mm. and mm -hmm. that it's hardly ever realized. And when it is, it requires a huge amount of effort, a huge amount of commitment, and it's not to be taken for granted. And somehow, I think one of the problems with sort of contemporary liberal democracy and in particular social democratic takes on contemporary liberal democracy is that some of these things are taken for granted as mm. if they were always there and we just have to defend them. Right. That, that's what I was about to ask is, is that is there a sense that, that in the Republican tradition, so we're thinking here about a, a tradition that thinks about in terms of kind of liberty and individual liberty, social liberty, etc. Um, 
you know, how, how far in, in that kind of theoretical stance, which I think, you know, I think it's reasonable to say has atrophied over the course of the 20th century. Is there in the classical formulations of that a recognition that this is a state that has not yet been achieved, right? So we're thinking now kind of post-1789 all the way through the kind of heyday of, of that kind of Republican tradition mm-hmm. in the 19th century, that it was a, an object of struggle. Oh, absolutely. So this was part of the debates uh, that came up with the French Revolution, basically. I mean, many critics of the French Revolution saw that the French Revolution had these great slogans of freedom and equality and solidarity or fraternity, but that these slogans actually failed to apply to more than half of the population. And so many Republican critics, not just necessarily Marxist, but also sort of um, so- socialist or uh, more left of li- left mm-hmm. liberal critics of um, republicanism, were precisely emphasizing the fact that there is a divorce between the state that we have and the state that we should have, or the republics that we have and the republics that we should have. And so this was very much part of the social criticism of the uh, of the Republican project, as I say, not just from mm-hmm. Marxists, not mm-hmm. just from radicals, but also from people like John Stuart Mill, for right. example, yes. who yeah. uh, campaigned for women in um, inclusion and so on. So I, I guess keeping the state in view, I think is important for understanding why migration is so salient. But, you know, the, the other thing about this is that, that today, you know, when we think of the state, we think of an international order of states, right? And whether that's um, in a global sense, or whether that's uh, limited to kind of relatively regionalized areas. So the EU is, is the obvious one. Um, but there are, there are all kinds of other, uh, you know, regional structures. Uh, and, you know, obviously within states as well, I think it's also important to, to bear in mind that, that there are geographic disparities and internal migration matters. Um and and it struck me while preparing for this show is, is that often the accounts given of migration or, the, or particularly the, the plaudits given to uh, you know intra-community migration within Europe uh, by you know you know very very vocal anti-Brexiters within Britain at the moment tend to collapse the distinctions between different kinds of migrants. So. Um, you know, I was thinking, you know, you have guest workers, not a big thing in, in Britain, but in other places in Europe, they're, they're, you know, they have a larger presence. Um, you know, have asylum seekers, you have uh, you know, illegal workers in, in urban economies. It's foundational to the urban economy of things, of cities in the United States, for instance. Um, you have this kind of striated freedom of movement. So, so people, you know, I have a British passport and I'm white. I, you know, I don't have problems at borders, mm-hmm. um, uh, except occasionally at uh, Schiphol. Um, but you know, you also have you know these policies of refugee containment. So uh, you know, refugees you know tend to be taken in in adjacent countries. So this, this rhetoric in Europe about being flooded by refugees says nothing about the actual patterns of movement. So so what does it mean this this model of of of, of you know is it meaningful to talk about migrants at all uh, as a mass or, or or is it reasonable or, or, or is that just useless? Um. I am skeptical of the use of the term migrants mm-hmm. as such. And uh, I know there's people who talk about migrants as revolutionary mm-hmm. subjects. But uh, I think it's it's as meaningful or as meaningless as talking about the human being mm-hmm. as such or the citizen as such. I think it's very difficult to talk about the position of migrants and the claims that migrant makes without thinking about what kind of migrants, in what context, for what reasons, and under what constraints. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems around the, the borders open or closed debate, as it's presented often in mainstream academic, but also political literature or more mainstream media, is precisely that it sort of loses sight of the internal differentiations within the citizenry and within migration population. And so when we think about are we in favor or against 
against open borders, we somehow forget that borders are always open for some people and closed for other people. So they're more open and more closed. Mm. They're more open if you're white, middle class, educated, even if you come from Albania, like me. And they are much less open if you are of a different race, of a different uh, working class position, for example, or uh, act under constraints that aren't necessarily there um, in the first case. And so I think one of the problems with the open borders debate and also of migration in general being discussed as migration rather than what kind of migration under what constraints and in what country and in what period even is precisely that we lose sight of the fact that a migrant may or may not be a target depending on what kind of migrant they are. I mean, mm. football managers and football players and actresses and Olympic athletes are all migrants, but mm. they're extremely privileged migrants. They're unlikely to go through any of the burdens of admission and integration that the kinds of migrants that we worry about when we think about the burdens of migration uh, are. So um, there's an anecdotal example. When I applied for permanent leave to remain, I discovered that for a super premium visa fee, you could have home office official come to your home and collect your fingerprints and process the whole application within 24 hours. So it's there's still a border. Yeah. There's still a constraint. But think about that constraint against someone who instead doesn't even have the means to mm. access the application procedure or has problems navigating the internet yeah. or has problems with uh, operating, uh, discussing with officials on the phone. Or so There's a number of barriers on communication and integration that are just faced in an unequal way. And I mm. think the kind of the general, the catch-all phrase migrant doesn't necessarily allow you to capture these different elements. Yes, it's, it, I, it's striking this kind of uh, the, I mean, the 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 work I think uh, you may be alluding to is, I, I think I mentioned it to you before the show, is this work by Sandro Mezzadra, which talks about, you know, maybe the, the possibility of the migrant as a revolutionary subject, which maybe we'll come on to later because I think it's an odd, you know, it's an odd formulation, one that has something interesting to say, uh, you know, as you're formulating it, about the state, mm -hmm. but perhaps less about right. <laughs> migration itself. Um, but but the thing that struck me about his work is to, is his his attention to the fact that borders do proliferate, right? So, And they have different degrees of porousness for different individuals. Um, and that, I think, is striking. It, it helps us circle back to the question of class in migration, which I think is fundamental. Um, but also, you know, the, the flip side of the super premium service is getting to Croydon for 5am uh, and sitting, you know, in the waiting room at Luna House Absolutely. all day yep. because you don't know when you're going to be called. And if you're not there when you're called, that's it over for you. You've got to come Absolutely. back the next day. Yeah. Um, it's a really, really punishing process and yeah. one that is invisible to most citizens of this country. So that's a, a, another sense, I think, which which is striking is that the, both of these things are often invisible, right? Um, that the, the sheer difficulty um, of, of this stuff for many people is invisible and the ease of it is invisible. So so for people who are citizens of, of the UK, that, that stuff barely even exists. Yeah, it's a real encounter with Kafkaian bureaucracy, which yeah. you do occasionally encounter as a citizen. But I think one doesn't realize how much one encounters it as someone who instead has to go through this process. Mm. I mean, so anecdotally, when I applied for the said permanent leave to remain, I was at risk of being deported because the uh, current, the temporary leave to remain was expiring in a month and I had to make an appointment to try and process the new application. And it turned out there was no office in England that had an appointment available within the next month. And so, you know, here you have someone who is... Um, doesn't normally have a lot of barriers to communication, mm -hmm. integration and so on, perfectly able to access the application form, perfectly capable to pay for the fee that is required and so on, and yet is faced with this fundamental insecurity. Um, so 
Yeah, so then so, I had to go to Scotland to, to apply for it, which is, I mean, this is just anecdotal, but what yeah, I'm saying yeah. is that if someone, even someone like me, mm, who is mm, in a relatively cushioned social position, faces these obstacles, then think about someone who's in a much less vulnerable position and what kind of obstacles they face and how they, um, what, what that means to them psychologically and socially. So one of the things that's present in this discussion and, and about the stories you've just sort of been telling and, 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 and in that kind of, you know, what I was doing is invoking actually how, how difficult it is for one side and, and, and not the other. So that's an invocation of a kind of ethical question. And one of the things that I think is really, really striking when reading uh, a lot of work on migration and a lot of work, you know, especially from the left on migration, is, to ca- is that it couches claims about uh, state duties to migrants in very, very strong ethical terms. So, and which doesn't seem to me, an, uh, you know, a wrong thing. By the way, I should point out to our <laughs> listeners, right? So, something like uh, the the immigration detention centres, like Yars Wood, mm-hmm. that is, you know, that there there are extremely forceful ethical arguments to be made for their abolition, um, and about and and that they indict the way in which the state treats migrants. Um, at, at, at the same time, that you know, the, these kind of ethical claims are very strongly contested. Um, and and so it, my question, I guess, is, you know, is migration more so than other political issues? Uh, you know, does it have a particularly strong ethical component? Um, no, I wouldn't say so. I would say it's it's just as ethic amenable to ethical arguments mm-hmm. as as other questions, and it's just a question of what kind of um, discussions get more visibility mm-hmm. and how one mobilizes emotions around these issues. I don't think there's anything wrong with mobilizing and making moral arguments on behalf of uh, a political cause, say, so in this case, the hunger strike. Or I think it's important, however, that one doesn't stay at the level of making ethical claims and that one tries to channel these ethical claims through political activism and the right political institutions that are then reflective of these claims and able to appropriately channel them at the right level so that they are then given political force and political voice so that one doesn't just stay at the level of expressing, say, social movement solidarity, mm-hmm. but that something also happens at the level of policy. And to fill the gap between the ethics of these issues and the policy of these issues, there is, again, as I was saying earlier, politics in between. Mm-hmm. And that gap, that space needs to be populated and can only be populated by making forceful political claims alongside the ethical claims and in one ways also showing the limitations of the ethical claims. Do you think it is at the moment being filled that political space? I think it's very difficult to fill especially for political parties, for example, or for institutional mm-hmm. political actors. It's easier to feel for social movements, but then the danger is there that it, it becomes an expression of solidarity, which has less purchase on policy. And it's easier to feel, it's, it's harder to feel for um, for political parties because of the way the incentives and the electoral system work and the political um, mechanisms through which certain decisions mm-hmm. or certain expressions, or certain views get channeled into policy. I think migration there is, particularly salient as particularly difficult mm. because um, parties tend to mobilize national electorates and a migrant is by definition someone who is not part of the national electorate, is not part of the citizenry, is not part of a citizen. So the payoff, the electoral payoff of campaigning on behalf of migrants is very little and the electoral payoff or being silent or in, in the kind of best case scenario or of campaigning against migration mm-hmm. is much greater if public opinion is moving in a certain way. And so for that reason, it's the reason 
that there's a sort of structural reason for why that space is very difficult to occupy mm-hmm. for emancipatory political agents of the left, let's mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. And that is to do with the constraints under the electoral system and under what um, the, the way in which parties operate and the way in which political institutions generate policies. But I think it would be important, and again, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, to try and think about how one might revive that project mm. of transnational international solidarity. Um, it's interesting because I have uh, one of the things that I was thinking about this morning was, was whether... So if we think about there being a relatively strong ethical argument, moral argument, um, or ethical claim to be made about migration policy is whether that obligation doesn't only exist on individuals, but on specific states in different ways. Mm -hmm. So here, I think specifically of the colonial history of something like Britain. Um, And so whether we could think that the British state might have particular obligations that arise out of its history. So, I mean, the Windrush uh, scandal at the moment is part of that. Um, and, And whether that is a sustainable basis on which to make uh, a political claim. Yeah, so the Windrush case is a particularly interesting one because it's a way of coming to terms with the colonial past without really coming to terms mm. with it. So this sort of hint that these are our people, but without much background on the conditions under which these could be considered as our people or your people in your case. I'm not a citizen yet. <laughs> so, um, so, so, so the interesting thing about that, the, the Windrush case, and in general, the kind of the colonial case is precisely that it says, well, look, even if we take the political community, and even if we follow this kind of large family model of the political community that I've been mentioning mm-hmm. at the very beginning, where we say, we say, well, the state is like a big family, mm-hmm. there is a sense in which these are all associative relations that were also all within the family. And it was like having kind of family with one part of it that was abusive towards the other part. <laughs> and that has somewhat realized that uh-huh. the abuse that's been going on and now wants to make amends for it in one way mm-hmm. uh, where that is the case. It's not always the case. In fact, it's mostly not. This is sort of obscured. But that's what makes the particularly interesting uh, example is precisely the fact that we think of colonial, um, former colonized states as members of this large family in one way or another. And therefore, migration there is not quite, it's, it's mm. difficult to conceptualize, difficult to talk about in terms of migration, because these were, after all, citizens or members of that very political community. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky, it's a border case, mm-hmm. um, but one that I think is, is worth exploring. Whether in general one should make an argument for more obligations towards, of, of states towards their former colonies and so on, I think that's a plausible, um, it's a, it's, a, it's a plausible argument to make. And I think there's certainly something to be said for sort of greater responsibility, just like we talk about historical injustice mm. and how to make amends for historical injustice and migration policy could be one way in which we think yeah. about rectifying historical injustice under these conditions. Um, but we don't want to reify the state again. And so the, the danger is that if one takes that argument too far, which I think is a plausible argument to make and one should make, but one should also be wary of the limitations of it, which is, again, that it's it, it's parasitic on this essentializing mm-hmm. image of the political community as having this kind of yeah. as, as a sort of large family that is uh, now making amends towards the, the, the younger brothers and mm-hmm. sisters that mm-hmm. were formerly mm-hmm. abused. And I think it's the, the whole... Um, narrative is parasitic on mm-hmm. that image of the political community. If one wants to challenge it, then one would tell a different story. One would tell the story about transnational capital and mm-hmm. exploitation taking place, not necessarily just through states, but but the fact that states were instruments of that larger yeah. transnational exploitation. And, and so it would be, a, I think, a different 
Yeah, so you have a different account there of, of kind of the emergence of capitalism as, as, as using or being uh, co-involved with the state. And so something like the, the East India Company exactly. would be a really, yeah. really useful example for that. Um, and then the question becomes, I think, maybe, and, and I think perhaps, I mean, the, the thing that springs out of this for me is that it, it may well be easier for the modern capitalist state to deal with things in terms of immigration policy rather than think about actually addressing that the kind of hidden mode of production in some way, right? To, to, to think about actually this is, you know, you know, leaving that economic side utterly untouched, you know, you know, leaves in place for one thing, kind of huge international disparities right. uh, in wealth, and and I think you know that would be, you know, as much as the British state is not good at dealing with immigration, it's even worse at dealing with that. Yeah. Um, so, and one of the things that aligns to this account is is an account by. Uh, the late Sir Michael Dummett, who's uh, who's sort of analytic philosopher, and who made the claim, and I think it's an interesting philosophical claim, um, that you know, and he's he's writing here specifically in a short book. It's by Routledge called On Immigration and Refugees, and it's sort of just that very kind of reasonable Anglo-American style of kind of laying out uh, a political claim, a political philosophical claim. He, he you know he suggests that you know. Um, that, you know, so, for, for instance, he, he, he decries the, the invention of something like carrier liability. So we have here uh, a, a regulation that emerged from the United States that says, um, actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, so an airline or a you know, ferry company or whatever is liable for a fine if it doesn't ensure that the people who are uh, being transported uh, have the right visa to arrive. So this therefore um, puts all the onus on these private companies to police or to help police the border. Um, and you know, so, so in the case of asylum in particular, um, he makes the argument that if there is uh, a duty to offer help to someone, so if we have the, off, you know, the duty to offer help to someone who is, in, you know, who is fleeing war, persecution, whatever, it follows that there has to be a duty to allow them to ask for help. And if you're not allowing them to reach the point where they can make uh, uh, you know, that claim of help, uh, it, it, that you are you know, defective in, in your performance mm -hmm. of that duty. Um, so he says, therefore, you know, systemic visa restrictions uh, are not only unjust, but, but even go against you know, the Convention on Refugees mm -hmm. in 1951 and, and, and later protocol on, on the obligations of, of the state. And he then goes on to make the point that given the ratios uh, of you know, uh, income per head between the between sort of you know, global economies, um, justice requires direct question. Just, justice requires that the rich countries should not shut their door against the poor. Now, it seems to me that that is a much harder argument to make politically in this country and certainly within advanced. Uh, you know, advanced capitalist states, that actually the distinction between the asylum seeker and the economic migrant is not something that is either sustainable. Um, or that can actually be justified. Um, is do you think that's a reasonable claim? It's, that's what you're agreeing yeah. with, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. There is the, yeah. this distinction between the refugee yeah, and the yeah, economic yeah. migrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I yeah, think I would, yeah, I would, yeah. I would endorse that. I mean, this is another interesting question when you think about the the right to exclude, which is what this whole debate refers to. Is and if and if you think about the emergence of the state in historical context, is that again most a lot of the as you said analytical Anglo-American literature on the right to exclude assumes that the state is this kind of sta the first kind of state, the one mm -hmm. the benign state that I began with, that there is sort of this ideal version of what a state is for and how that state then can be entitled to exercise the right to exclude. But on the other hand, if you put that narrative in context of historical 
again, we talked about colonialism or in the context of the kind of huge power asymmetries that have characterized the making of international law and the very creation mm-hmm. of states and the very emergence of new states or consolidation of old states from old empires and so on and so forth. Then the question of the right to exclude and that therefore the corollary question of what should we do with people who are asking for help or for ask, asking for inclusion becomes really interesting because it's a little bit as if, and I often use this metaphor, it's as if a bunch of mafiosi have managed to fence off a common bit of land and convinced everyone around them that this is their land. Mm-hmm. And then successive generations make use of this claim and they forget that they are the, child, the grandchildren mm-hmm, and the children mm-hmm. of a mafiosi and that this piece of land was in the first instance, fenced off against a huge amount of injustice and inequality and exploitation of other areas of the world. And so how you then develop a right to exclude if you think about the legitimacy and the rightfulness of states to exclude in this picture, mm. meaning the mm. picture of the state with an exploitative state, with a capitalist state, with a state that has emerged against the background of all this injustice, then the moral question of should that state have a right to exclude or not becomes like saying, well, should the children of the mafiosi exclude or drown, allow uh-huh. other people to be drowned mm-hmm, and so on. Mm-hmm. And once we think about that, I think we think about the state in a very different mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. It's funny, actually, one, one book I think that... Um, that, that really suffers from this is the um, John Rawls's sort of sequel to, to a theory of justice, the law of peoples, in which he sort of suggests that actually, you know, there isn't a right for migrants from poor countries to move to rich ones um, because uh, they come from cultures that have failed to make their states successful. It's a really odd argument for, you know, and, you know, Rawls is held up by sort of the liberal left as this kind of iconic defender uh, of, of, you know, uh, of a relatively egalitarian society. And maybe he is, but it's only within the borders of a single state. I mean, it's really, really sort of shocking argument, actually. It's I was, also, I think it's also a question of, so, uh, so to give a more charitable reading of Rawls, <laughs> it's also a question of whether Rawls is talking about the ideal of the state yes, or the state yeah. as he knows it. So often people think that when Rawls talks about theory of justice and the just society, he's thinking about 1970s America mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. Um, or United States and therefore then point out all the inequalities that characterize yeah, yeah, that yeah. society and so on. And in fact, Rawls often in exchange with his critics goes back and says, yeah. well, actually, I'm talking about a well-ordered society <laughs> and and in this case, in the case of the law of people, what how would a well-ordered society manage the right to exclude, mm. assuming that there's other well-ordered societies out right. there who yeah, are yeah, fully yeah. responsible for their plight? But of course, again, if you tell the story of the state in the context of the development of state under capitalism, then the well-ordered society is not there in the first mm. place because mm. what you have is a bunch of unjust societies that need to become just in the first place mm-hmm. in order to then raise all these other questions. And so it, it becomes a much, much more complicated. Um, Let's picture. talk about passions. Um, because one of the things that is really clear from anyone who's been involved in activism around migration, but who's also simply just read the front pages of the papers, is that migration uh, inspires passionate kind of denunciations on the one hand. Uh, so these kind of almost, uh, you know, these, these overblown headlines, right? These kind of uh, uh, fear mongering and whatever. And these things get repeated by people, right? It's not something that's confined just to the front pages um, so, so it's a it's a real subject that brings up, uh, usually in British political discourse, like deep anger, um, you know, deep resentment, uh, and then often on the side of the left, a kind of similar uh, anger and passion on on the behalf of uh, of migrants and refugees. Um, and then you see these occasional inversions. So, uh, just after the the death of Ailan Kurdi, who was the um, young Syrian child whose body was found uh, on, on a beach. Uh, you, we saw this kind of uh, outpouring of humanitarian concern you know, rather disingenuously on the front pages of the same papers that had been kind of uh, pumping out this bile uh, 
Um, but that kind of passion, as opposed to so that kind of passion that says we must do something, we have to do something, there has to be a solution to this problem. That kind of passion doesn't seem to form into an enduring political force in the same way uh, that, that that kind of resentment or that kind of hatred uh, seems to, to have an almost exclusive, or until very recently, a, a kind of you know, dominant purchase uh, on institutional politics within the UK. So you know, why do these, you know, why do certain passions or certain kind of uh, uh, you know, emotional convulsions of the, kind of, of the people seem to form themselves into, into these, these relatively durable political forces uh, and others just seem to be flashes mm-hmm. in the pan? So I would I would disagree with the fact that passions as such have either mobilizing or demobilizing potential and also that there are some passions that are more amenable to becoming politicized than others that are not. I think it's a question of how passions encounter structures mm-hmm. and what kind of structures are there in place that fertilize or fail to fertilize certain passions. So I think, I mean, so Aristotle already talks about the power of the multitude mm-hmm. in enhancing certain passions. And he says, well, one of the good things about the multitude is that certain passions, heroism, for example, Mm-hmm. When there's a whole bunch of people displaying it together, heroism becomes even more heroic um, and so on with other passions as well. So it's so it's it's a good thing that there are emotions in politics. And the question is not so much are there some emotions that are more divisive and less divisive and have greater force than others. I think the question is more what kind of political structures are there that are able to and what kind of political mm-hmm. movements are there that are able to mobilize people on the basis of these passions and how much of a potential to create a lasting legacy do these structures mm-hmm. have. So I think emotions have to be channeled in politics. And they have to be channeled in the first instance by appealing to the kind of empathy of the wider public, as they did in the case that you mentioned. But they also then have to be taken up by social movements, by activists who then try to create a sort of more lasting legacy for the ideas that these Mm -hmm. passions generate. And again, it's not enough that social movements take them up because social movements are all all themselves also vulnerable of being ephemeral and dying out when the wave of mobilization um, dies out and so on. And so it's important that the social movements then are anchored to political institutions Mm -hmm. that are able to turn the ideas on which the... um, that have been fertilized through the social movements in kind of political ideas and then ultimately public policies. So I think uh, there's a kind of link, passions, ideas, movements, political institutions, policies that has to all work in a certain way for some passions to become generative of, let's say, let's call it positive political energy (laughs) or emancipatory political energy. And... um, and so when, when policies are divorced from politics and politics is divorced from the kind of electoral context, it becomes very difficult to then mobilize certain passions. In right. A so, this way. Is so. The, maybe this brings us into it to maybe one of the interesting questions. So you've written on cosmopolitanism. And one of the things that's really striking to me over the, you know, over the course of the past few decades in Britain is the way in which, and cosmopolitanism has a, a long and very, very, very interesting history, um, you know, right from its kind of initial coinage as this kind of scandalous rejection of a, a very bordered, very narrow political community um, by Diogenes. Um, but but then, then, you know, over the last few decades in Britain in particular, cosmopolitanism becomes a word that's really closely constellated with a kind of very technocratic, very removed, uh, often kind of urban elite uh, who, 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 whose cosmopolitanism is, is a very kind of etiolated and withered uh, for, you know, it takes the form of, uh, you know, uh, various pizzas in Pizza Express and, you know, Italian coffee on your mm-hmm. high street. So it comes into this kind of commoditized form. Um, is there a stronger um, uh, animated form of cosmopolitanism which could perhaps uh, help uh, 
build those political, uh, those enduring institutions. Yeah, so I've been writing about the idea of what I call statist cosmopolitanism, which is the idea that we are committed to what is at the bottom of a cosmopolitan attitude, which is the idea of moral equality of all human beings, but then have to think about how we can channel this idea of moral equality of human beings into appropriate politics and policies. And so there the the divide wouldn't be between the statists on the one hand who hold on to this ideal of a state that I've been mentioning and the cosmopolitans who are hostile to this ideal of a state, but it would be about thinking about the state as a kind of vehicle and instrument of social emancipation that can also be put at the service of cosmopolitan purposes mm-hmm. and goals. And that goes back again to when we were beginning our conversation talking about the left and the, the loss of internationalism in the left. This kind of cosmopolitanism that is politically rooted and mm-hmm. is embedded in existing political structures, domestic political structures, but that tries to change political structures in the service and aligned with the sort of larger, more universalist project would be compatible with a, a marriage of cosmopolitanism with emancipatory domestic political movements mm-hmm. and doesn't necessarily mean that one should endorse this image of the cosmopolitan that you were saying. There's a good <laughs> title of, a, of an article, I think, by Craig Calhoun, says the, the class consciousness of frequent travelers. <laughs> and it seems that the cosmopolitanism is uh-huh. precisely that. And uh-huh. uh, But, but one doesn't, that doesn't need to be the case. Mm-hmm. One can take the moral commitments of cosmopolitanism and think and use it as the starting point of, a, of another, a deeper inquiry mm-hmm. into how then this cosmopolitan moral commitment is permeated into social structures and political structures and how it is used to political struggles and to open up, for example, in the case of the franchise, to open up the democratic franchise to inclusion. And so, so there's mm-hmm, a whole mm-hmm. bunch of good things that come with being a cosmopolitan. So but the, the critique that's often leveled at cosmopolitans, cosmopolitans from, uh, from certain sections of the left uh, are one, uh, and it's you know the, the very worst sections of the left, are that there are irreducible cultural conflicts that can't be solved in cosmopolitanism. The other one that I think is maybe more interesting and perhaps uh, worth exploring a bit more is the question of how cosmopolitanism as a kind of moral claim interacts with the economic reality of internationalization that says, okay, well, look, that there, there, there is no domestic consent any longer for migration. Um, you know, and it's, you know, they often overstate, we think, probably empirically the effect of migration on wages. Um, you know, there seems to be a marginal effect, but not as substantial as some kind of left opponents of migration make it out. Um, so, so these questions, these cultural, economic and class questions seem to me to be at the centre of why there seems to be a bit of a conflict in the left mm-hmm. about this issue. Uh, are those reasonable objections? And can they be answered? Um, so I think there is a there is a plausible version of the of the leftist objection to cosmopolitanism, which has to do which has implications for for, for the migration debate. I think it has a kind of prima facie plausibility, and I'll say why it's prima facie plausible, but ultimately should be discarded. Uh-huh. I think the prima facie possibility is to say, well, look, uh, labor force is a good like other goods that circulate in the free market. And since the left or socialists should be skeptical of uncontrolled liberal free markets when it comes to goods, then we should also think about free markets of labor with the same dose of scepticism. So there's a kind of healthy scepticism that comes with thinking about labor market. There's a whole number of arguments that one makes. So there's a kind of protectionist argument that says that um, uncontrolled immigration might, for example, undermine domestic labor movements and trade unions where they are strong and that there is a there is a danger that comes to domestic political mm-hmm. mobilization if one is not careful about these kinds of claims. And as I say, although the position does seem to have some prima facie plausibility, I think there's a kind of temporal fallacy that the left makes in this case in thinking about first we prioritize domestic workers and then we're going to think about international workers. But while we're prioritizing domestic workers, let us 
deal with international mm. workers by placing controls and by I think it's a fallacy firstly because the way in which international capital works and the way in which the current financialized economy makes it very very difficult to sustain any kind of emancipatory project in the sort of holding for in the in the sort of fortress examples mm. I don't think social democracy in one country doesn't work um, for it didn't work and it's not going to work now. It didn't work in the past. It's not going to start working now where we have even more globalization, even more financialization and so on. So there is a, there is a kind of fallacy and a sort of mistake in thinking about the process in temporal terms, whereby we think emancipate domestic workers and then we do international workers. But then there is also a number of, of problems and limitations that are of a kind of more hegemonic nature and sort of consciousness raising nature, because there is a danger that the left in this case aligns with the hostile xenophobic right by making substantively the same argument, even though for different reasons. Mm and therefore empowers that voice in the public sphere. And there is a risk that one, then that voice becomes a dominant voice and is not challenged. So I think one should... as I say, make the appropriate qualifications. It's not easy to make appropriate qualifications in the media, obviously, <laughs> yeah. because the media wants you to just give a one-line version, mm-hmm. one-line answer. Is it good or is it bad? Is the left uh, being in favor or against migration? What should we? How should we deal it? Do you have a, um, a two-sentence answer? But since it's not a two-sentence answer, the full story should be told, which is that the transnational labor movement and the domestic labor movement should emancipate mm-hmm. at the same time. And the link, the fights are intertwined yeah, and yeah, one yeah, can't yeah. prioritize one over the other. They have to go on at the same time and one has to make precisely these claims and tell the longer story every time one is asked. Do you think there is also a, a certain kind of misunderstanding that that arises when claims are made about class? And I'm thinking here about the rise of a kind of reified cultural identity of the white working class, which may exist as a reified cultural identity, and that being taken for as meaning um, class relations in themselves. So therefore migrants are necessarily excluded from being working class because they're migrants. Mm-hmm. This doesn't seem to me to be... And it's one of the dangers of this, or, or the way that this kind of plays out, I think, sometimes on the left, is to talk about class as just another identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and is there the possibility of a vision of class which includes uh, migrant labour as as not only a key, like a fundamental component of that and 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 does it you know does that entail a reconceptualization of the way in which we think about industrial relations in this country about the way in which we think about uh, you know representation of, of class uh, I don't know whether <laughs> so I think yes absolutely I think uh well, it's, there's, there's some very clear examples. I mean, when you think about workers and the exploitation of workers in capitalist societies, workers are exploited whether they are domestic workers or whether they're migrants, migrant workers. So there's a very, in, in one superficial way, there's very easy and w- very simple way in which you can think about solidarity that cuts across cultural divides that has to do with class solidarity and with, with the position within the labor market. And so there's an easy way for the left to kind of go back and say, look, to deconstruct the narrative of white working class versus migrant working class by saying, look, this is about working class. What's relevant here is the term working class mm-hmm. and the social position and the allocation of social positions and the vulnerabilities that come with that in this uh, in this particular context. And if that were the case, then one would think of the emancipation of workers in general and not just about the emancipation of domestic workers versus international workers and about the obstacles, let's say, that international workers pose to the emancipation of domestic Mm -hmm. workers, because one would think about the whole category of workers as one used to think traditionally as an international category. I mean, capital knows no boundaries, so why should labor know boundaries? Um, And therefore, I think, again, there's the risk is that by talking too much about the white working class, one clusters together the white 
white part and the working class part, mm. and one reifies both without then allowing for a space of critique and questioning of, of both of these terms, what they mean and what they stand for in social theoretical. I mean, I suppose the thing that gets thrown back at the left about this is to say that is 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 to accuse the left of a kind of vulgar reductionism, right, and say that actually you know culture is real, it exists, and and has. Uh, you know, has material effects, right? So that actually you you can't just talk about class. You can't just talk about you know, whatever, whatever. I mean, I personally don't buy it. Actually. Well, I mean, so, I mean, but I think... this, the, the argument that I'm making isn't necessarily a direct challenge to that mm-hmm. in saying, sure, but cl- culture is diverse as well. Yes. So cultures exist and they are internally diverse. Yes. And this is one thing that I've been writing about a little bit and sort of thinking about is the, how, how these issues impact how we think about citizenship policies, mm-hmm. for example. So one thing that is often in, in when, when we talk about migration debates, one of the things that rarely migration scholars question is the idea of making citizenship conditional on passing citizenship tests. Often the debate is, should we uh, have this citizenship test as a minimal test or should it be more expansive and question real knowledge or should it be something about basic functioning? And I think one thing that the progressive political movements really ought to take up on this is to really confront this very idea of citizenship tests head on and say, Mm -hmm. no, there should be no citizenship test whatsoever. Because this is a way in which through citizenship tests, in which we kind of reify the political community Mm -hmm. and we try to sort out the good citizens from the bad citizens in the same way in which when citizenship was closed in this sort of 18th century, 19th century, prior to the opening up of the franchise, people used to make all kinds of arguments about people not being able to read and write and not being able to participate as competent members of the public sphere because right, they spoke so dialects. And so you get and, these yeah. literacy tests and so on. And so these arguments, we've heard them before. Citizenship tests is the modern equivalent of the restriction of the franchise towards domestic mm-hmm. workers that was going on in the 19th century. People were saying, you can't possibly have workers vote. They can't speak the national language. National language is unified. It's a written language. They haven't gone to school. Mm-hmm. How can they contribute to public debate? And it's the same debates that you get now by saying migrants shouldn't be allowed to be citizens without passing these tests because if they pass the test, then they're good citizens and they have the competences and the knowledge and they can contribute to the public debate. If they don't pass the test, that means that we're not. they would be an undermining of our so kind of national we, we mandate citizenship as a kind of uh, as a reflection of an actually existing political community. Absolutely. So I would say, I mean, if citizenship is to be a vehicle of social emancipation and to kind of keep questioning the state and to be a kind of vehicle of social emancipation in the way that con- contains and criticizes the state and that is critical of existing democratic structures, then it shouldn't be conditional mm-hmm. because it being conditional makes it uncritical yeah. and also depoliticizes it. It turns it into a cultural category, mm-hmm. whereby and this sort of goes back to the beginning of your question, which was, well, are there a culture? Of course, there are cultures. But they are diverse. Mm -hmm. And because they are diverse, citizenship is one way in which one could question the internal tensions Mm -hmm. within specific cultures to kind of mobilize these tensions and to put them at the service of a political, a wider political platform. And I suppose a a kind of mandatory citizenship would necessarily... Uh, force a kind of rethinking of what it means to w- what sovereignty means, right? So it would mean that that the sovereign people really are the sovereign people. Right. It's like everyone who is here is exactly. has 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 rights of equal participation, and that to me is striking when I think of something you know some of the work of someone like Wendy Brown, who points out that these these this paranoia about you know the, in, it's a book called Walled States Waning Sovereignty, which points out the 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 collocation of anxieties about sovereignty with these kind of right. this wall building projects. Right. It's very very interesting book in that sense. So would this be a way through these kind of contemporary debates about sovereignty that are, that seem to me to be you know all over the place and yet kind of never really articulated, never properly yeah. uh, brought to the fore? Yeah, although um, I'm not sure that sovereignty is now something that... You, I don't think the debate should be focused on sovereignty mm-hmm. because as I say sovereignty, just like sovereignty, just like the sure, migrant, sure, is sure. a sort of yeah, general yeah, yeah. 
category for something that is very flexible and uh, very amenable to different kinds of transformations. And so I think if we think about sovereignty, if we think about the state without thinking about what kind of state in the service of what kind of project, then we reify these categories Mm -hmm. that we're trying to question. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing goes on with sovereignty. If we're talking about borders, the right to exclude, all these things are all ways in which one draws attention to one way of dividing the lines, which is Mm -hmm. ethnic, cultural, and away from another way of dividing the line. Now, that's not to say that this alternative narrative often based on culture or ethnicity or language and so on, has no place whatsoever. But I think it's just been overdone. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it, it's time to recenter attention into some of these yeah. other issues that have to do with class and with what kind of borders and what kind of classes. And, I like that. Um, I like I like this a kind of scandalous and simple demand that, that people who are here should have citizenship. Yeah. It's really, yeah. I think, an effective one. Um, we have five minutes left. Uh, my last question, I guess, um, is about the thing that's been kind of hovering over our discussion is that relation between the kind of utopian and the practical political. So activists against detention regimes, against uh, detention centres, border deaths, um, often catch arguments in that strongly moral universalist uh, term, you know, the slogan no borders has a utopian ring to it. Um, you know, world completely transformed. And yet the practice of social change, the practice of social struggle is piecemeal, it is gradualist, it's legalist, it's involved in all these organs of the state. Um, So is there a way of thinking about the relationship between these two things, Um, you know, utopian practicality, um, you know, examples of institutions or or potential institutions Mm -hmm. or ways of thinking about the political that can yoke them together? Yeah, I think it's so one one simple answer is to not worry about the tension. Uh, I think worrying about the tension is a way of it sort of expresses an anxiety to endorse one of these two things. And so either go very utopian or go very realistic. And I think... Endorsing the tension means that one is then aware and um, and attentive mm-hmm. to the dynamics and the sort of the, the ways in which both of these things can produce negative or positive consequences depending on the on the political context. So I think there is and this tension is obviously one that has characterized the left throughout. I mean, there's always a point where you know the left goes social democratic and institutionalized, and then there's a question of well, what happened to the radical project mm-hmm. now that we've become all worried about citizenship, as Bernstein was, yeah. for example, yeah. he said was well, so citizenship is a kind of emancipatory now is an emancipatory category because we manage to expand the franchise and to include the working class and so on. And so so capital is not the kind of enemy that mm. one would have thought if citizenship can be made to work in the service of social democracy. This was kind of traditional social democratic argument. And I think it was riding on this polarity mm-hmm. and dualism between the utopian elements and the sort of more idealistic visionary elements within the Marxist tradition and the ones that were more interested in strategy and practice mm. and actual transformation, small gains and so on. And I think, again, I... I'm someone who believes that the tension is productive and that one should pay attention to both of them and not worry about the fact that there is... Of course, there's Mm -hmm. a tension there because if ultimately one thinks about transcending the state, for example, uh, and ending up with with the sort of withering away of the state Mm -hmm. and so on, then, of course, committing too much to the state and believing too much in this project is somewhat at odds with that. But I think... But then one would sacrifice the short term is gains that one might make in then committing oneself too much to the utopia and not worry about what happens with the hunger mm-hmm. strike and the people who are actually dying and the poorest people who are exploited every day if one just keeps postponing to the kind of yeah. utopian future. So I think, yes, there are mo- moments of mobilization. And I actually really do like the 
current moment of political mobilization in this country. I yeah. think it's one of <laughs> the first time in my life I thought I ended up in the right country in terms of what's going on politically sure, yeah, and yeah. in terms of the kind of activism and the relationship between activism on the one hand mm-hmm. and political institutions on the other. I know a lot of people are worried about that. A lot of people are worried about losing privileges. A lot of people are worried about bureaucratizing of certain mm-hmm. structures. Also, some people on the social movement side might be worried about losing their identity and sort of going too much a kind of bureaucratic mm-hmm. way. But I think this is actually a really good productive example of what it means to have a political agent like the current Labour Party that is with one foot in the social movements and with one foot in the institutions and trying mm. to inhabit this tension in a productive way. Yeah, I think uh, I think that is a fabulous place for us to leave it. Um, uh, as I said at the top of the show, uh, we have our forthcoming birthday party on May the 11th. Uh, Utopia now, uh, an, an enjoyable contradiction of a phrase in itself. Um, I will be back at the same time uh, in the same place next week. I have been James Butler. This has been Navarro FM. Leo P. thank you very much for joining me today. And bye-bye. Thank you for having me. This show is brought to you by Navarro Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navarromedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can exist only thanks to the generosity of our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events, as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media, media for a different politics.